The early part of 1916 on the Western Front was dominated by the effects of a harsh winter. Heavy snow for several weeks was followed by the consequences of a thaw which meant that operations had slowed. Our understanding of the war in 1916, particularly in Northern Ireland, is dominated by the events associated with the Battle of the Somme. I'll be taking a look at the Somme and the Sandy Rose sacrifice shortly, but first of all I want to share a few things that I came across from the early part of 1916 in connection with Sandy Rowe and the war. On Thursday the 20th of January 1916, Sandy Rowe Orange Hall hosted a fundraising event in the form of an entertaining variety show provided by the pupils of Porter's Girls National School in Apsley Street. The proceeds of the fundraiser went to the Ulster Volunteer Force Hospital in Belfast. It was the fourth such fundraiser that had been held by the school up to that point in aid of wounded servicemen, and many others were being held across the city. On this occasion, there were 19 items on the entertainment programme in the style of a variety performance featuring songs from the infants and children, as well as duets from the teachers. A clever parody on Sing Me to Sleep, which was written by a soldier at the front, was sung by the chairman, the Reverend W.J. Hansen. The evening concluded with the singing of the Russian, French and British national anthems. And so successful was the event that it was repeated the very next night on Friday the 21st of January. In total, £15 and 14 shillings was handed over to the Honorary Secretary of the UVF Hospital by Miss Harrison of the Porter's Girls' School. St Aidan's Parish Church on Blythe Street was also involved in the huge efforts across the city to provide comforts and entertainments for wounded servicemen. On Saturday the 7th of April, for example, at the church, wounded soldiers from local hospitals were entertained with games, performances and gifts in an organised effort to lift their battered spirits. In February 1916, however, at a bazaar in St Aidan's Parish Church, it was mentioned in passing by the rector, Louis Crooks, that 900 men of the parish were on active service out of a male population of about 3,000. The prisoners were proud, it was said, though their hearts were sore at the loss of 20 of their own who had made the supreme sacrifice to save those at home from what was described as Prussian arrogance and tyranny. This is the closest information I have come across which puts a specific number on the men from Sandy Row District who served in the First World War. Sandy Row was regularly compared to the Shankill Road in this period in terms of its politics and its demographics. Professor Richard Grayson's research has shown us that around 2,400 men from the Shankill Road served in the Great War. And with this in mind then, and if Sandy Row can be regarded as similar, albeit smaller, then one might predict that in the region of 1,500 to 2,000 men from the district uh, may have saw military service. To make this a pre precise sense, however, it would require a large-scale trawl of records in the style of Professor Richard Grayson's military history from the street methodology. And for a more detailed insight into Grayson's approach to this type of research, it's worth going back to episode 10 of this podcast to hear it from the man himself. I think there's without doubt a research project here for someone to follow on after me. In March 1916, a new military lodge was formed at Ballykinder Camp in connection with the 17th Battalion, the Royal Irish Rifles, a reserve battalion of the 36th Ulster Division. 
The warrant which was issued to this new military lodge was number 1079, which itself had a remarkable history, particularly in military spheres, and was regarded as one of the treasures of the Orange Institution. The warrant was also under the care of number 5 district, which meant that Sandy Rowe had the honour of identifying itself with this new military lodge. The installation ceremony was led by the district's worshipful master, David Foy, whose sons were on active service and whom you'll hear more about later. Also in attendance was William Bridget, the orange banner maker from Sandy Row, who also had a son on active service and who you'll also hear more about a little later. The lodge still exists today and is known as Belgravia LOL 1079 and this year it celebrated its 105th anniversary, albeit in muted fashion because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not only did Sandy Road District have the honour of overseeing one of the few military lodges in existence, it also had the honour of a Victoria Cross recommendation among its brethren. Private Robert Dixon of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry was a member of Sandy Row Volunteers, LOL 2442. On 25th of March 1916, another man with connections to Sandy Row was carrying out gallant work on the battlefield in the Hullock sector. Lieutenant Alexander Barnett of the 7th Royal Irish Rifles, the 16th Irish Division, was a member of Sandy Row Methodist Church. For his actions, he received a gallantry certificate from Major General Hickey, commanding officer of the Irish Division. And it read, I have read with much pleasure the reports of your brigade commander regarding your gallant conduct and devotion to duty in the field on the 25th of March 1916, and have ordered your name and deed to be entered in the record of the Irish Division. Barnett had been with the Royal Irish Rifles since September 1914, having obtained his commission through the Officer Training Corps at Queen's University. May 1916 then saw the largest and most important naval battle of the First World War, the Battle of Jutland. Jutland involved around 100,000 men during an horrific 36 hours, in which time the Royal Navy lost 14 ships and 6,000 naval men, while Germany lost 11 ships and 2,500 naval men. Among them was able seaman John Moore of 24 Rowland Street, killed in action on the 31st of May. Moore, who was 28 years old, was serving on board HMS Indefatigable when it was shelled in the first minutes of the battle. Only three of the crew of 1019 survived the incident with over 120 of them being Irish-born sailors. Back on the Western Front, plans had been materialising since late 1915 for a major offensive the following year, one that was intended to signal the beginning of the end for the war. Just as the 10th Irish Division had played a central role at Gallipoli, the 36th Ulster Division and the 16th Irish Division would play key roles of their own at the Battle of the Somme. The battle was hatched as the big push that would win the war, but by June 1916 it was an exercise in keeping the Allies in the war as a result of the German attack at Verdun. Huge preparations were made for this great advance, and for the Ulster Division this began in May when they were moved to the Thiepval area. It wasn't long before the division came under attack. 
Rifleman William Bingham of the 8th Royal Irish Rifles, the East Belfast Volunteers, was awarded the Military Medal for his bravery during a heavy German bombardment on the 10th of June. He was on sentry duty at the time, and though shells were falling continuously in his trench, he never flinched and, in the words of his platoon commander, bravely stayed at his post. Bingham was just 18 years of age at the time of this incident. Prior to the war, he had been living at 64 Rowland Street, Sandy Row. His father and uncle were both on active service with the 10th Royal Irish Rifles. Bingham's platoon commander in the 8th Royal Irish Rifles wrote to his mother to say, I'm very proud to have your son as a rifleman in my platoon. It was later reported, after the offensive on the Somme on the 1st of July, that William Bingham had been, quote, dangerously wounded. He does appear to have survived the war, though. Bingham's father, on the other hand, also called William, was not so fortunate. Having also been wounded at the Somme, he died two years later on the 6th of August 1918 in the Thompson Memorial Home, where he had been resident for only three weeks before he died. Bingham was buried in Belfast City Cemetery on the 8th of August with military honours. William Jr.'s uncle, Thomas, also appears to have died with the 10th Royal Irish Rifles on the 6th of August 1917 and today is commemorated on the Menin Gate Memorial at Ypres. Preparations for the advance on the Somme ended on the 24th of June when a heavy bombardment of the German lines commenced. The objective of the bombardment was to lay waste to the German lines so that the infantry could advance easily. The Germans, however, were not passive during this bombardment and managed to inflict some casualties of their own. On the 28th of June, three days before the offensive, 14 men were killed, nine more who would die of wounds later, when a powerful shell devastated a platoon from C Company of the 13th Royal Irish Rifles who had been preparing to move into the frontline trenches. One of those killed was a Monaghan man, Company Sergeant Major Joseph McCoy, who had lived at 22 Blythe Street with his wife Eliza. For the Ulster Division, their objective for the attack on the 1st of July 1916 was to take the Schwaben Redoubt, a German stronghold consisting of a complicated network of trenches and fortified machine gun posts. Not only that, it was on top of a hill and it was protected by 16 rows of barbed wire. And that was only the front line. After the ferocious bombardment, the plan was to sweep into the German trenches, which were to be sufficiently devastated by this shell fire. However, the best laid plans of Douglas Haig did not translate into reality as the bombardment didn't have the desired effect. South Belfast veteran Tommy Nesbitt recalled the situation to another veteran, George Hill, over a pint in a Shaftesbury Square pub. And he said, We knew that this coming battle of the Somme was going to be different, said Tommy. The bombardment of the Jerry Trenches went on day and night. When the barrage lifted on the morning of the 1st, we went over the top in waves. We had practised it when out of the line. Some of the lads had got hold of a football and kicked it ahead, shouting up the blues or up the glens. The Ulster Division initially overwhelmed the German lines and took their stated objective. But the successes couldn't be maintained and they were forced to withdraw by nightfall. Tommy remembered it. We took the first line of Jerry trenches without much trouble. The second soon cleared the survivors and was a bit sticky. But we went on to their third line. We outdistanced the divisions on either side of ours. 
It was then that their machine gunners really opened up. It was like running into an invisible wall. One minute, men were running alongside you, ready with their bayonets to deal with the Jerrys, and the next moment you were on your own. That was when I got my packet through the chest. It was quite a few hours before the stretcher bearers picked me up. I knew they'd been very busy, and anyhow, I was still alive. A German corporal named Henkel, who had faced the Ulster Division on that day, remembered poignantly the scene as the Ulster Division fell back. They retreated in their droves from the Schwaben Redoubt. Once again our machine guns chattered. Once again our rifle barrels glowed red hot. Once again my men were seized by the reckless bravado which had gripped them in the morning. Many an Irish mother's son lay down to the sleep from which there is no awakening. Indeed, 2,000 Irish mothers' sons lay down to the sleep from which there is no awakening, from the Ulster Division alone. Around 5,000 casualties in total, of which 2,000 were dead. Of that number, many were from Sandy Row, and they included Rifleman Hugh Gamble of 19 Rowland Street killed with the 10th Royal Irish Rifles. Rifleman James Maxwell of 26 Hurst Street, aged 27, he was killed with A Company, the 10th Royal Irish Rifles. Rifleman William Milliken of 25 Rowland Street, aged 23, killed with C Company, the 10th Royal Irish Rifles. Private Robert Baxter of 4 Boyne Square, killed with the King's own Scottish Borderers. The 2nd of July then saw some counter-raids by the Ulster Division and attempts made to recover ground and to recover bodies. The 3rd of July was devoted to counting the cost of the previous two days. By the 10th of July then, the Ulster Division were miles behind the front line at a village called Blairingham where it was reported that they enjoyed a Boyne commemoration parade with orange flowers in their hats. From that moment on they were a very different division and as the war progressed they became an Ulster Division in name only. And this was a point made by veteran George Hill because he said... There were two Ulster Divisions, the one that existed right up until the 1st of July 1916 and the one that existed afterwards. I belonged to the formation that existed afterwards. It still sported the red hand, it still had a few survivors of the original division and it even had a few thousand Ulster men in its ranks, mostly youngsters like me, but was as different from the original Ulster Division as chalk is from cheese. The Battle of the Somme lasted for 141 days in total before eventually petering out in November 1916. The British had advanced seven miles in that time at a cost of 125,000 British lives. Today the Somme is a byword for futility and incompetence, but some historians disagree drastically on the outcome of this battle. A topic for another podcast on another day, I'm afraid. Back in Belfast, though, it was almost time for Sandy Row to celebrate the 12th of July, the most important date in the Orange Parading calendar. However, in 1916, the 12th was observed in a quiet fashion due to the cancellation of parades and demonstrations across all of the districts. For those that had lost loved ones, this was not the time for celebration. The Worshipful Master of Sandy Row, Number 5 District, David Foy, whose three sons were serving, one of whom, David, 
killed on the 1st of July, another Charles was wounded during the same advance and a third brother George was later taken prisoner in 1918. All three brothers were members of the Ulster Volunteer Force. In the absence of a parade, the Battle of the Boyne was still celebrated in Sandy Row Orange Hall by one of the lodges, St Aidan's Church Total Abstinence, during which a resolution was agreed. That we, the members of Loyal Orange Lodge 1457, on this, the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne, desire to express our appreciation of the gallant members of our Ulster Division at the ever-memorable and glorious assault made on the German lines on the 1st of July, and we further desire to express our very deep sympathy to all the relatives and friends of those who have either been killed, wounded or missing, and we trust they will be comforted by the fact that their heroes fell like true sons of Ulster. In supporting the resolution, the Reverend Louis Crook said that in the whole of the British Empire there was not a more loyal part than Ulster, and in the whole of Ulster there was no more loyal part than Sandy Row. The lads of that neighbourhood, said Crooks, had proved their loyalty on the battlefield, and in consequence there was hardly a home in it where they did not mourn the loss of a loved one. If blood were the price of loyalty, the men of Sandy Row had paid it. Later in the year, and at a meeting of the Irish Temperance League at Queen's Island in Belfast, the Lord Primate of All Ireland gave an address. During the course of the address, he mentioned how he had been out in the Western Front in February and had met hundreds of Belfast men, including many who had told him they worked in the shipyard prior to the war. He also visited the trenches, and while there, he noticed that one had been recently constructed, a fine trench in front of all the others. The men in possession of the trench had been instructed to defend it to the death. They included some of the Belfast men and shipyard workers. The men asked their sergeant to make representation to the Lord Primate to inquire if he would christen their new trench. So he went along and when he arrived the men asked him what he would like to call the trench. He replied that he would like to call it Sandy Row. Why, your reverence, the men exclaimed, there are already dozens of Sandy Rows. Then, said the Lord Primate, we will call it Donegal Pass, one of the best cut trenches on the Western Front, to which the men agreed. Back in the pub in Shaftesbury Square, where the two Ulster Division veterans from South Belfast were reminiscing over a pint, George Hill asked Tommy Nesbitt, How do you feel about it all now, Tommy, now that it's all old hat and water under the bridge? Tommy's eyes lit up. Perhaps memories of the comradeship of those days in the trenches occurred to him as something very precious, culminating in that 1st of July morning in 1916, when that band of brothers had charged towards their deaths. He looked at George and said, Why, man, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Tommy Nesbitt died soon afterwards in his home just a couple of hundred yards from the Belfast Gasworks. Thanks for listening to this milestone 20th episode of the Historical Belfast podcast. If you're new to the podcast, then be sure to dip back into all of the previous episodes. Next up will be part three of three, looking at Sandy Row and the Great War. This Sandy Row miniseries is brought to you in collaboration with Belfast South Community Resources and also with the support of the South Belfast Urban Village Initiative. If you're enjoying the episodes, please remember to give the podcast a rating and to share on your social media.